I'd like to review the assignments for week two, week three, and week four for contemporary Catholicism. Week two, I asked you to read Reza Aslan, God is One, along with the introductory chapter to Thomas Rausch. God is One is Reza Aslan's attempt to reconcile or understand the tradition of monotheism in ancient Judaism. The key points that I want you to take away from this are, number one, that Judaism does not begin as a monotheistic tradition in terms of believing in only one God. Aslan makes a point in his chapter where he addresses the fact that the tribe of Israel was very much aware of neighboring gods and goddesses celebrated by neighbors, Canaanites, Hittites, Philistines, Egyptians, as far north as the Greeks and perhaps even the Romans, Babylonians, Persians, etc., to the further east. It took a man by the name of Abraham in scripture to acknowledge that his people, his tribe, would worship one God. Second point is that the naming of God is complex, and it's also borrowed. So Aslan in this chapter makes it clear that for Moses, Moses had to declare that the name of God revealed to him in the land of Midian was Yahweh, often recognized as YHWH. We add the vowels when Germ Germany and German language gets a hold of it, so it becomes Y-A-H-W-E-H. Yahweh is believed to be the tribal god of the people of the land of Midian. It is this god who declares himself to Moses to be the same god as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and those who arrived in Egypt prior to their enslavement. Additionally, in the chapter, Aslan talks about the god named El, who is typically the god referred to for the people of the land of Canaan, or what will become the nation of Israel. In short, neither of these names is incorrect. And in fact, what we see is the authors of the Bible taking both names and converging them into one. Yahweh, or El, is represented as the same God. Aslan, by the way, also talks about these variations of El. El Shaddai, El Roy, Elohim, they are all interchangeable with the root El. Together, Yahweh, or God, and El, or Lord, will often be written in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible as Lord God. And so the authors understood El and Yahweh to be the same. This is the main point of Aslan's chapter, God is One. I'd now like to move on to Thomas Rausch's chapter from This is Our Faith, an Introduction to Catholicism. Rausch's chapter picks up mimicking much of what Aslan writes about, outlining the different images of God found in the mythologies of Mesopotamia and Canaan before moving into the other gods that are recognized in the northern, uh, excuse me, North America and the Western Hemisphere. 
What's fundamental in this chapter is this description of a personal God, pages 10 and following, where Rausch talks about the Abrahamic religious traditions that Aslan very much highlights in his text. He highlights in this passage, passage in this chapter, Exodus 20, quote, I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. You shall have no other gods beside me. This first commandment is foundational for the belief and the centering of the Jewish tradition and the understanding of one God for the people of Israel, which is then adopted by Christianity later on. Page 11, he brings up this philosophical idea of the death of God. This is a modern concept that's introduced by the likes of Hegel and Friedrich Nietzsche, who asked the question, where is God? Nietzsche's preposition here, or proposition rather, discusses the death of God in light of humanity, that we as humans have tried to encapsulate God, tried to create God in an image that suits us or that fits our context. And postmodern thinkers have wrestled with this idea. Postmodern thinkers have said Nietzsche was not trying to dismiss God as though an atheist would, but rather address God in the context of human words. Humanity, in other words, has encapsulated or captured God by way of masculine language, human form, ways in which we describe being or humanity, or living, and life. And so the challenge for postmodernity is to say, can we look at God in new ways, in new narratives? And in doing so, we might be able to re-examine God as not a thing, if you will, trapped by human language and human words, but instead God as love, as the Gospel of John promotes. He also brings up popular atheists like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, the late Christopher Hitchens, and so forth, who collectively represent main arguments of atheism, but in no way are comprehensive or complete in their depiction or description of atheism. For instance, Christopher Hitchens will tell you that there is no unified atheistic way of viewing religion or God or the tradition that is Judeo-Christian tradition. Instead, each relies on his or her own platform. For example, Hitchens will say that for some science works, others literature, specifically for him, the literature of Shakespeare as a way to address ethics and morality, the way to address human life and society, thinking and philosophical ideas. And in this instance, the dismissal of God via atheism is presented here to say that there are these other views that have taken the death of God to mean something more than what Nietzsche and postmodernity proposes. Science, too, is introduced here by the work of John Hott, who argues for the relationship that exists between science and theology, science and religion. Moving on to page 14 and following, here 
Rausch talks about the presentation of Israel's God, much of which I introduced at the beginning, and much of which is covered in Aslan's chapter. So once again, I'd encourage you, if you haven't gone through Aslan's uh, short chapter, to do so. Page 18 is the God in Christian theology. And here we find sort of the traditional presentations of God beyond the New Testament. So he introduces you to St. Anselm of Canterbury, an 11th century monk, theologian, and bishop, who uses metaphorical language to describe God, taking things that are common to humanity and describing God in an analogous way. Thomas Aquinas, who's presented in this chapter, is also referred, referring to God using conceptualized images while also drawing on the metaphysics and the uh, work of Aristotle. Here, God is described as being. God is described as the unmoved mover, the source of things that move, the source of energy, the source of life. Looking at the window, we see God in the wind. We see God in the rain. We see God in the sunshine. These are the ways to which these medieval uh, Christian thinkers would have presented God. There are others who are mentioned in this chapter as well, notably Karl Rahner, who talks about God being incomprehensible to the human mind. This is very much a postmodern uh, description, where on page 20, he ends that first full paragraph writing, even to speak about God is difficult, for God remains ineffable, nameless, and unknowable. To his conclusion, Rausch recaptures the ideas presented once again in the ideas that echo, are echoed in uh, Aslan's book, while also facing the realities that modernity is po poised with. This notion of atheism, as we mentioned, this notion of secularism, which is brought up at the beginning of the chapter, and this increasing question of how God fits into one's life. Though this is not a scripture class, I did want to introduce you to some of the texts that reflect the early days of the church. So now that we have a basic understanding of God in terms of Judeo-Christian thought, as presented in Aslan and Rausch, I wanted to now address those moments after Jesus' death of what those early church leaders were experiencing. In general, it's confusion. In general, it's anxiety. They don't know what they are tasked with doing now that their master, their rabbi, their teacher has died. So we turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 16. We see that this resurrection of Jesus is met with surprise by the first three who arrive, Mary, Mary Magdalene, uh, and uh, then the subsequent men who arrive. And they're surprised to find that the tomb is empty. You see, in each one of these stories, the expectation was that Jesus was buried in this tomb temporarily on a Friday, the, the Sabbath evening for the Jewish people. And remember, Jesus and his disciples were Jewish. So they would have rested the body in this place to return then Sunday to give Jesus a proper burial which meant to clean the body, to shroud the body, 
and then to leave the body to basically decompose on its own in this tomb, in this cave. And instead what they find is that there is no body, and yet they're confronted with this man who alerts them, don't panic, you're looking for Jesus, he's risen from the dead, and he's on his way to meet his friends. Now, in Mark, we are given two endings, and that has a lot to do with the authorship of the text. There's this shorter ending where there's an instruction uh, by Peter to gather and then to go out uh, east and west to share what they had just learned about Jesus. The longer edition is more intriguing, and this is probably added uh, years after the original text is authored, somewhere in the 60s AD. And here Jesus appears to not only Mary Magdalene, but also two disciples. And then Jesus commissions the 12 to go out, to cast out demons, to speak in new languages, to give signs to those who are questioning and want to believe who Jesus is. And then we're told in verse 19 of, of the last chapter of Mark's gospel that Jesus rises to sit at the right hand of the Father. Now, Matthew and Luke's gospel, the next two gospels that I ask you to read, are very much mirror images with additional details put in them that reflect the differences in the communities. So again, here in 28 of Matthew's gospel, we find that Mary Magdalene and Mary arrive. Uh, they're likewise surprised and shocked that the body is missing. They're confronted by this other individual who's, who tells them, don't be afraid. Jesus is on his way to meet his friends. The guard is introduced in this chapter in which he has to report back to the authority in Jerusalem that, in fact, Jesus had been missing. The body was gone. In verse 16, you have another description of Jesus' sending out. Interestingly, in this gospel, the instructions are just to speak to those who are Jewish versus what you'll find in Luke's gospel, uh, where Luke introduces the mission to all, not just those who were uh, faithful Jewish men and women. So that brings us to Luke's gospel. In the uh, chapters that I asked you to read, chapters uh, 24, you find, once again, the resurrection. Um, here, there's no description of exactly who arrives, but uh, we're just told that there were some who arrived at the tomb only to find it empty. In addition to the 12, though, we're told that Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and other women uh, were told to go and meet with the other 12. On the walk to Emmaus, the story that we have, we have two of those disciples of Jesus walking along, and they encounter this man. And this man asks them, why are you so downtrodden? You know, why is it that you carry your head low, essentially? And they're surprised. How could this man walking with them not know of this news? You know, this was a big to-do. Here is this man, not only a week ago, who was celebrated by his entrance into the city of Jerusalem, flocked by... Oh, 
pardon the uh, phone interruption there, but he's flocked by uh, palm trees and those waving at him, celebrating his entrance into the city. And here you have it where now he's dead. And uh, they're questioning, you know, how does this man not know? And then Jesus reveals that it's in fact him who's walking alongside them. And they're once again shocked and in awe. How could this master who they've known so well just surprise them with this, this appearance? And he tells them, don't worry. Once again, go ahead and prepare for my arrival. I'd like to speak to the twelve. So in verse 36, you have this introduction. Uh, and once again, you have this message to the disciples of, look, you are now tasked with going out and sharing this message with others. How does he show them? Well, he shows them that it's him by showing his open wounds on his hand and his feet. This is often a story associated with Thomas or doubting Thomas. Then in verse 50, you have uh, the story of the ascension of Jesus once again to sit at the right hand of the Father. In John's Gospel, a little bit longer between chapters 20 and 21, you once again have this resurrection event. Mary Magdalene is described as the only one arriving. She runs off to tell Peter that the tomb is empty. Peter needs to check himself, so he comes back. They see this man now appear to Mary Magdalene uh, as she cries outside of the tomb. And this man says to her, why are you crying? She stands up and realizes that this is Jesus. And once again, she is instructed to go and tell the disciples that he's in fact returned. He appears to the disciples. Thomas in this story is the one announced as show me your wounds, essentially. Give me proof, this doubting Thomas. Chapter 21, he appears to seven disciples in particular. Anytime you have a list in a Bible, uh, they are listed from least important to most important. And so you see here uh, that, that brief list of individuals introduced in the story. Peter is given a specific instruction in verse 15, tend to my sheep, be that leader. Peter says to Christ in verse 17, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. In other words, here is your job. In verse 20, we have this expression of the beloved disciple. Um, and we think there's some flexibility being taken here by the author, uh, some, some free will, if you will, uh, where the author of John's gospel is entitling himself or the master, John, uh, to be that beloved disciple. And so what you see here is this, this special final blessing to this uh, beloved disciple in the final few verses of the chapter. Now, in Acts, Acts 15 introduces us to the, the initial struggle that goes on with the early church. So at this point in Acts, we know that Judas Iscariot has been replaced. So there are officially 12, and now they've taken on the title of apostle. In other words, masters of this tradition. And we also see that 
Paul, also known as Saul, or previously known as Saul, has joined the ranks. Now, Paul does not know Jesus. He's never met Jesus. But because of this encounter that he has earlier in the book of Acts, he's confident that he knows and understands the faith enough to go out and teach the faith. And so they gather, Paul and the other 12, at Jerusalem to have this debate. And essentially, the debate is around who they are to convert. The debate is centered on how they welcome newcomers. Are those newcomers first to be converted to Judaism, or are they welcomed as Gentiles? James has his agenda. James wants Peter to side with him and accept the idea that they must convert to the Jewish life first. That meant for uh, men being circumcised for all following the kosher laws and believing and following in all the rules of the Torah before they accepted the stories of Christ, the celebration of the Eucharist, and so forth. For Paul and his companion Barnabas, listening to this, they remain silent, but when asked, they stand up and say, look, you really will not be able to grow this church without accepting those Gentiles. Peter, in his wisdom, if you will, and those in Peter's circle, eventually will come to the conclusion that Paul is right. And they send a letter with Paul to those Gentile communities, Gentile meaning non-Jewish, those in Antioch, in Syria, in Cilicia, uh, stated in chapter uh, chapter sixteen, chapter fifteen, excuse me, verse twenty-three. And in that letter, they say to those communities, "Listen to Paul; he has our approval. You too can join our community to be uh, not Christians yet, but followers of the way." They weren't sure what to call themselves quite yet. And so they recognize themselves as followers of the way. Eventually, in verse 36, we're told that Paul and Barnabas, with this new commission to go and preach to these new Gentile communities, depart. Barnabas takes Mark with him and sails to Cyprus. Whether or not this is the, the author of Mark, we're not sure. Um, and Paul elects to take Silas with him, and he goes off to Syria and Cilicia strengthening those churches there and bringing both of them bringing in new members. The last part of this recording turns to Reza Aslan's God is Three and a brief video by Bishop Robert Barron, What is the Trinity, that I asked you to watch for this week. So God is Three is an interesting chapter insofar as it highlights the post-resurrection church um, specifically focused on the Gospel of John as being different than and the last written of all the four Gospels. So he mentions Matthew, Mark, and Luke being the synoptic Gospels. They don't really question uh, the divinity or the reality of who Jesus was other than he served as a Jewish rabbi for those communities. John, interestingly, includes this Hellenistic philosophy and the aspect of logos or the divine reason for something. I mean, commonly we refer to logos as word or logic, but here Aslan wants to make it clear that 
what they're referring to in the gospel is actually this main reason, this background. Again, I apologize for the phone. Whoever wrote the Gospel of John was well ingrained with this Hellenistic thought, this notion that there was some common sustenance or substance behind uh, the way the world, the universe, the stars, the moon, etc. moved. And that sustenance, they would argue, by the likes of Pythagoras and Xenophanes and Plato was this one god. Now, when Plato writes, for example, he doesn't understand this one God to be Yahweh, as in the Old Testament God, but nevertheless, there was something that caused life, that caused movement, that caused energy. And so we see the Gospel of John pick up on these ideas. Now, at the same time, there is a question, Aslan writes, about the deification of various humans. So we know from Greek mythology that this was a common attribute, that there were these uh, sort of semi-gods, um, half human, half divine, uh, who played a role in the mythology and the stories of Greek life. But even more so, you find in both Greek, Roman, Egyptian, and other Mesopotamian societies, this idea that humans could be deified, could be made into gods. Sometimes this was during their life, and sometimes and frequently this was after that they would elevate that human to a godlike status. So at one point in the chapter, Aslan uh, gives you this illustration of Caesar Augustus, who uh, on the coin, it says Caesar, son of God. In other words, the community believed that Caesar was in fact this deified creature, this deified uh, image of God here on earth. And yet, this was not a practice found in Judaism. Judaism respected the idea of Yahweh as the God, the one and only God, by the time we get into the first and second centuries of the Christian church especially. And so the challenge for the early church was, how do we accept and adopt the idea of one God as found in our Jewish sisters and brothers, combine that with the idea of Logos, this now Hellenistic philosophy that was deeply ingrained in the emerging Christian church. And how do we place that with talking about God and Jesus? And so you have different ideas emerging by the fourth century, and there's a series of questions. How do we come to grips with this notion of Jesus being equal to or connected with God in some way. And he goes into quite a bit of information centered on Marcion, this uh, teacher whose writings would continue well into the 5th century in places like Turkey and Greece and Syria. But I want to make it clear here that Marcion's ideas are not adopted by the church. In fact, Marcion is run out of town uh, early on in the church, around 139 CE, or the Common Era, AD. And he's run out of town because he makes this argument that there must be two gods. And the Roman fathers, reading into this story of the Gospels, reading into the stories of the New Testament, and focusing on this tradition of Logos and one God in the Jewish tradition, which they've now adopted wholeheartedly, Marcion's rejected because 
Marcion's ideas would mean no longer would there be a connection between Judaism and Christianity, and that's not something the early church fathers either A, wanted to maintain, or B, saw as logical in their understanding and teaching of the church. Because of Marcion's dismissal, you find this shift in the thinking of the church and this insistence that there was only one God. And Marcion and other Gnostic teachers, meaning those who challenged the church in their teachings, they were met with individuals and church fathers like Ignatius of Antioch and Clement of Rome who insisted that the early church, the early tradition, worshipped only one God. And the teacher of that tradition was the bishop. And as we see, as we'll read through the rest of the semester, we saw that uh, Rome became this central place for this teaching, that when in doubt, local bishops, like local bishops in uh, northern Africa, in Jerusalem, in uh, parts of Greece and Turkey, Ephesus, um, you know, Syria, would reach out to Rome and say, can you answer this question for us? Questions of civil debate, questions of religious debate, questions of what we are supposed to do in a local community, those questions would end up going to Rome. And so we start to see this authority, this hierarchy begin to emerge, uh, as Aslan points out. Now, eventually you have uh, the Emperor Diocletian, who's mentioned later in Aslan's chapter. And what we see is that because Christianity is finding a home in the Roman Empire and finding itself welcomed, and in turn, this meant less and less people were paying attention to the Roman system of gods and goddesses, and therefore less money coming into those temples and in turn to the emperor and the empire. You saw emperors like Diocletian forcefully shut down Christian communities, uh, forcing them to participate in um, public burnings and in public executions and public sport. Uh, we know from the story of Emperor Nero you know, taking Christians and forcing them into places like the Colosseum to fight lions and tigers and bears, oh my. This was a custom that was normal for uh, early emperors fighting against Christianity. Diocletian would also, for a better or worse, set the empire into chaos when he decided that there should be two sub-emperors, one east in Rome, excuse me, one east in Constantinople and one west in Rome. Emperor Constantine would reverse this trend and decide that it was better the empire be unified. In conquering Rome and conquering Constantinople, he solved this situation of east and west divide by declaring himself the emperor of Rome. And he attributes his victory to his Christian faith. So instead of one God and one bishop, we now have an emperor declaring one God, one emperor. The tradition of Holy Roman Emperor would exist and continue well into the Middle Ages until eventually we have this divide, not only with Christianity, East and West, or excuse me, Catholicism, East and West, 
but also Christianity when we talk about the Protestant Reformation. Constantine declares Christianity then to be legal, as Aslan writes, and it is an official religion within the empire. And yet he's not satisfied with this divide between who exactly Jesus is in comparison to the one God. In other words, we've got this declaration of one God, but we don't understand how Jesus fits into this story. So in 325, Aslan writes, he calls these great Christian thinkers to the table at the Council of Nicaea and asks them once and for all, make a decision, declare who God is and who Jesus is in relationship to one another. So at the council, they declared that it is God the Father, Yahweh, and God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost, this divine spirit of God who remains in the world. They are of one substance. This is the teaching of Tertullian, the great thinker. Thus, we have the teaching of Trinity. There's still some confusion, and it wouldn't be until the 5th century when you have the great thinker, philosopher, and writer, and convert to Christianity, St. Augustine of Hippo, and his masterpiece on the Trinity declare once and for all that God is eternal, that God is unchanging, that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How this works, Augustine writes, it's a mystery. And that's the tradition of what the uh, great thinker Augustine declares. The Trinity remains a mystery. It remains for us unclear as to exactly how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit remain, what substance they share. It is something, as we mentioned earlier in this recording, God remains unintelligible to us as human beings, and thus we have to be satisfied with that. The Council of Chalcedon adopts Augustine's teachings by 451 as the teaching of the Church. It affirmed its position that Jesus Christ, writes Aslan, while truly God, was also truly human. Quote, the same essence with the Father as to his Godhead and the same essence with us to his manhood, Christianity not only effectively annulled the post-exilic Jewish conception of God as singular and invisible, it surrendered itself completely to humanity's oldest and most deeply embedded impulse. It made the God of heaven and earth fully human. He concludes that, alluding to the, la to the last of the Western, uh, Western traditions, which would be Islam.